Testing, the modern testing podcast. Join your hosts, Alan. God! Now I'm mad! <laughs> and Brent. I am mindless, agile robot. I must iterate. God! <laughs> As we talk about software engineering, software quality, leadership, and whatever else comes to mind. Now, on with the show. Happy Snow Day, Brent. Happy Snowpocalypse. Yeah, so uh, we had a little bit of snow in our area. Yeah, my children were taking bets last night. My daughter said, Daddy, I bet you we won't go to school in February. Because mid- midwinter oh. break is starting next week. <laughs> yeah, my kids go uh, two hours late today. So they're getting a little bit in. But what's worse is... Mine are canceled. I went to the office. I went to my office yesterday. The first time since before I left for my trip to Europe. Because I got back, I was sick for a couple of days, and the snow came, and then I was snowbound, and then I, I wanted to leave Wednesday, but my neighbor managed to get their car stuck in the snow at the end of our perfectly flat driveway. At the end of your driveway? We have a shared like access road that goes to our driveway split off from each other, and they went oh, to leave, and they got stuck in the middle of the flat driveway. So that happened. So it was good to get out. I'm happy to be out. It's I was stuff. so happy with the snow day. Because, uh, as you know, I drive a big-ass truck, and I was able to get into work every single day, and no one else was. We had people come to the office on a few of the days, and there's only 20 people there out of normally 200, if everyone's there. It was quiet. The only way people could reach me was via Teams, and if I didn't respond, they couldn't tell why. It was just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I got stuff done. Anyway, good to be back. I think we've been a month since we've recorded, given my travel and being sick and snow. So I'm glad we got uh, a recording in today. This will We're recording on Friday, as usual. This will go out on Monday. And then uh, while you're listening to this on Monday, because everyone listens to the show right when it comes out, I will be skiing in Whistler, making my annual pilgrimage up north to uh, do things that I probably shouldn't be doing at my age on skis, but we'll see how it goes. So you're a skier? I'm a skier. Snowboard as well? I snowboarded last year with my daughter one day, and just thinking about it hurts. So uh, (laughs) I am going to ski with her this year. My daughter's a snowboarder. I definitely got better. I definitely got better, but I crashed a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. My fascination with the snow right now is, is stems from the fact that I'm a former Californian. I still think when it's snowing, it's magical. But I have pretty much done nothing with the snow this year. I don't even think I have thrown a snowball. Maybe we can do that after the podcast today. No, because all, <laughs> ha- all we have is slush. So, uh, uh, But my my on that front, my... my uh, Still at home, son? Yes. He made an igloo in my front yard. That's cool. It was. We had that much snow. <laughs> he actually, and the, the thing that was cool the, the day I, or a couple of days ago, I came home. He had strung through and buried electrical. And so his igloo lights up. His igloo's got power. <laughs> that is, I, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm impressed. That's my son. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed. I thought if it was okay with you, uh, we do a podcast, 
and then it would be an A-B testing podcast, and we would do mailbag questions. Sure. So what number episode are we? Are we we're in the 90s. We are in 97. Counting down to that number 100. And which it's, I'm sure, what are we going to do to make, what are we going to up, whatever, <laughs> what are we going to do to make it special? Do we want to plan that now? I no. I wanted to do a mailbag episode. We are, we are. <laughs> so that was a rhetorical question for you and a question for the listeners of the podcast. What should we do in episode 100? Should we bring back one of our former guests to talk about risk-based automation? Yeah, I figured that's what you were going <laughs> We have a, a we we should do something. We'll figure something out. We have not too long to decide, but some time to decide. Some time for you to offer your help. We should take calls into the show. I at the very last minute for the end of the year show, I asked people to record things, and it was too last minute. I wonder if now is early enough for people to actually. Maybe we should do that. I'm going to throw this out there, and if I don't get at least five, I'm not going to do it. But send me your your 15-second or shorter greeting or, or, or thoughts on episode 100 looking back as a wave or an MP3 file. And if we get enough of those, make a nice little montage. It'd be fun for one idea. And is there any way we could just do it live? Just do it live as a shoot a call-in show? Yeah. Let me think about that. I know I could broadcast it with Periscope. Let me think... But we don't want video. We are not video people. What would it be like to do like... Uh, let me think about that. I'm thinking something. we could do Skype. We could do... We were going to plan this. Or, or Joel no, does no, something here. Yeah, I know how to do... I, I think I can do this. Only a little bit of setup time. Mm. Be a f- little few extra pieces of equipment. But we could take calls during the show. Anyway... How about we do this show on... That, that would uh, be fantastic, and, and I'm sure it'll epically fail, which will make it a memorial or a, a memorable 100. Sure. <laughs> Our 100th and last episode. Okay, <laughs> on with the mailbag. Mail- uh, first. Oh. Sorry. Uh, it's the only opportunity I have. Um, oh, yeah, it's, it's plug time. Yes. I am doing no conferences in 20... 20- 2019. That's what you say every year. So and far, so far, I haven't done any liar, liar. so far. <laughs> I have done no conferences so far in 2019. So I yes, I, I think we can all agree that retroactively between <laughs> now and the start of the year, you will commit to no conferences. However, I am doing one uh, um, for AST. Association of Software Testing. Uh, it will be on Thursday next week. Um, I, although I guess by the time people read or get the podcast, it'll be Thursday of this week. So Ooh. quickly go register. We'll put in the show notes the link. Uh, it will be yeah, Alan will put in the show notes the link. As long as Brent uh, sends me the link, so I don't remember. Uh, it, it is on February 21st at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, I'm going to be discussing. It'll be a modification of the, the Unity presentation. I'm going to be discussing how to uh, sort of the approach or the journey around building a data-driven modern quality culture. 
I'm actually thinking uh, I'm going to shift the content about a bunch this weekend and um, uh, tie it to MT. I'm thinking it's uh, uh, obviously the data and the business principle are a key aspect of that. So I think I'm going to tell the story and tie it directly to those two principles. We'll see. Cool. I'm going to send my team there. I'll be skiing. I'll watch the recording. Your team's already seen the first version of it. I have new people since then. Oh, fair enough. Okay. Um, can we start? We can. All right. Mailbag. Our first question. We have a bunch of them. And I'm going to group a bunch of them into one question that we'll get to in a minute. But the first question is an email I received from Mirik Zaluski. And I probably butchered that name, best I can do. And by the way, if you have questions, you can, of course, if you're in our Slack channel, you can put Slack team, you can post them there, one of the three.slack.com. You can go to moderntesting.org and find the link to join that team. Or you can just email me, alan, A L A N, at angryweasel.com. And, and if you're in transition, I highly recommend you go to the Slack channel. Like that community is super supportive now and it's thriving. Love it. Yeah, I love that. Somebody will ask a question, and I'll go, I really should answer that, but then I don't because I'm busy, but then everybody else does. Yeah, I love that scale part of it. <laughs> uh, hi, Alan. In epi- I'm reading the mail. In episode 94, context-driven testing meets modern testing, one of you said that back when context-driven testing principles were created, there was a lot of unskilled testing. I probably said that. Presumably as opposed to right now when testing is skilled. Could you elaborate on that part? What are some skills that testers have today they didn't have back then? What are the most important skills testers have today? What skills do they need to have? What are the skills we should hone to stay relevant in the future? That's a lot of questions. So I think it's important to talk about the skilled versus unskilled, which is a, it's not a dichotomy. It's not a binary choice. So I should have said testers had fewer skills or were less often less skilled. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually hoping that it was you who said that and not me. I did. I did. Because <laughs> I remember hiring testers in the 90s because they knew how to use a computer and they had some, They in an interview, they demonstrated some aspects of critical thinking. So, yeah, I, uh, and, critical thinking, problem solving, so, those were all like on the interviews. Yeah. We so, didn't care where you came from. So to finish the thought there, oh, the sorry. idea was we had an army of these folks, uh, not paid a lot of money, but paid a, re- a good wage, and we could use them to effectively test quality into the product. Uh, but what they couldn't do was scale, or they couldn't find – once the bugs got harder to find – they became more or less, in many cases, useless. So as far as what skills they have today, they didn't have then, I think I just ranted about this on Twitter, is we went from folks who verified a lot of functional attributes were correct, but we need now to be able to use tools, to build tools or to use tools that can find a lot more difficult to find issues, to find the things that are impossible to find by hand. I think some of those skills are just technical skills. I mean, technical coding skills. Some are technical skills in knowing more tools of the craft to use and how to apply those. Uh, Of course, 
modern testing, having some data analysis skills, uh, both in mindset and in coding practices to be able to grok large amounts of data. Those skills are much more important today. But now I'm going to let you jump in because I finished my original thought. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about the day, um, right? I, I'm thinking about the STEs, then they became SDETs. Now, sort of a more of a unified culture. This is the way I I, I view the world. The STEs, the what what I remember from them is, uh, as you call out, they were cheap. We could hire a whole bunch of them, and the ones that that, and then just sort of deploy a natural selection process. People who just sort of came in and clicked on the product all day, right? Um, sure, the, the the ROI was there. They would find a bug as long as they had the ability to notice that they found a bug. Um, what I recall back in the day is that when I first came here, uh, what we call, uh, well, ad hoc testing was the dominant form. Mm-hmm. It's essentially click on the product until you find something. Right? Um, and then a, a manager would mitigate an underperforming person by putting a, a kick-ass um, bug count KPI, right? And now, you know, begins the spiral that we're still trying to t- yeah. <laughs> kill. As I read this question again, I'm wondering if the uh, the inventors of the context-driven testing principles would be slightly pissed at me for saying unskilled. Uh, but I do believe, again, less skilled, definitely less skilled, less breadth in their testing testing knowledge, less breadth in their knowledge of software definitely was occurring up to 2000-ish, maybe a few years after. I Yeah, what what... And I believe like C- me, CDT was like 97. To me, looking at sort of the difference between now and then, right, we called them STEs, software test engineers, but really they were, as I mentioned, ad hoc button clickers. Um, now, for me, that's that was, uh, damn, officially, I, I have now been in the industry 25 years. Um, in January, um, I, I passed twenty five years a long time ago. The like, wait, a year ago. <laughs> so we gave them a common title, but it, but the discipline wasn't any way, shape, or form anything that I would have called a craft. Definitely not, and I think that was true at a lot of companies. I think uh, what CDT did help a lot was take the people who are actually good at it and give them a rallying cry. I think much like yes, and and which I hope we've done a lot with modern testing, take the testers that have moved beyond, have evolved beyond just being the tester and the verifier. And, and actually one thing we've heard a lot, I don't have to make this part up is people say modern, we're, we're actually doing that. We just didn't have a name for it for modern testing. Oh, right. Yeah. So I think I think there's some similarities there. Uh, what and I think we've talked a lot about. Let's just recap on this quickly. But 
So we talk about the differences. Testers, testers are it engineers are a little bit more they have more breadth in their knowledge. They have a little bit deeper deeper knowledge of tools and or coding. They're able to do more things. It's much more of a definitely much more of a craft. Definitely much more of uh, there are definitely a test discipline still in many places, although we have our thoughts on that. <laughs> what are Again. What are what are skills though that you think are different now versus say learned different. knowledge? To me, to me, it's it's a lot of we need a lot more of the T shaped persona today than we did back then. The game industry, and I'm sure there's others, but the game industry is still the only one that I am aware of that kind of still hires that same class of folks. And it's not even all game companies. I've talked to some game companies who are much more advanced in how they do testing than than the the horror stories we hear out of some large game companies. Oh, yeah. And, um, uh, I, th- I think often of Jimbo, uh, a, a friend of uh, Alan and I, one I haven't talked to in I haven't years. talked to him in years. But um, it, it, within Microsoft in the game game uh, space he was doing a lot on data driven stuff yes yes Ye- for a long, for back long then, time that was impressive work what he had done yeah the data driven stuff uh, I would say I am convinced that the theme around the new skills are around scale yeah right? that yeah. test has to the, the testing skill set you have to be able to get to the same amount of risk mitigation at a much higher scale without sacrificing time so i'm always going to fall back on data and and doing customer quality analysis that's good but that's my wheelhouse in terms of tying directly to someone in test honestly i'm not certain that i'm i would be a good mentor even on on that privately or even on the podcast I think the questions we ask are a little. I, I think that's right on the money. I think their comment about what we, do, the technical skills we need to hone for the future, are skills that help software scale. I think the maybe the questions. What questions did we ask back in the day? Like, does this work? Uh, Is this automated? W- would this work for? And we'd look at have a variety of computers in our lab. I remember having like a huge computer lab. Yep. So we could test on different configurations. I was one of the people I had. One of my laptops was the same as Bill Gates' laptop at one point. So I could make sure that we had, we had a bunch of us had one to make sure we could dog food on the same build that he was dog fooding on to find harbor issues. But <laughs> <laughs> stupid stuff, right? Yeah. But now we get all that stuff through data. And the question we ask a lot now is, okay, that's great. Will that work for a million people? That's great. Will that work for 10 million people? Yes. And... Like one of the questions I asked just recently, one of my one of the people on my team was, hey, they said, hey, we're going to do A, B, and C. I said, great. So what happens if that's successful and you have 10,000 customers who want to do that? And the answer was, we can't handle that. And but let's have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a good question to have. Say, I mean, it's weird. That's a turning point. That's someone who's been in testing for a while, uh, getting them thinking about, Oh, scale as one of the initial questions they ask, I think is a really important thing to do. And one of, probably one of the best guiding things we can get people to start thinking about. Yeah. In terms of uh, a lot of the, a lot of my go-to examples are 
right, get accustomed to proving and disproving risk on your product by using the the telemetry, right? The, the the example I've given now a zillion times of change how you think about automation. Use your telemetry to build the oracles, not how do I even describe it? The previous model where where you would right, you would use automation to not only drive their product, but then you would use automation to verify the product. Mm-hmm. Right? That last bit is the thing I'm thinking needs to change and it takes it takes sort of comfort with data skills and, and it takes um, certainly both approaches take com- comfort with uh, coding skills. Cool. I think one of the other things testers need as far as skills, and we've talked about this in the principles, is this ability to coach, this ability to help people understand, to leverage to not take your testing expertise as some special snowflake skill that only you can master, but to use your knowledge to make the entire team better at testing. I will I even say it further. Um, it's always been the case. There's an old book I read years and years and years ago that said testing is 50% politics. And what they meant – is in order to get your bug fixed, you have to be good at negotiating and communicating uh, to win people over. Now, that was a world that was highly intuitive, right? Uh, It was a world where the first, uh, oftentimes we would be looking at bugs and the product still wasn't going to ship for another year. Um, The, but I don't think that's, I don't think that aspect has changed. The if you're still in a test role, um, you also have to be able to to communicate and influence others right. because uh, last I heard, unless you're in a unified engineering org, you cannot test quality in. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, you have to scale. Yeah, I think. That influence and leadership part has always been important. And I think it becomes more important as we have fewer testers or no testers or people just with the testing that that expertise on influencing people, which segues into the next question, which is two questions I'll read because they're both kind of the same question. Okay. Uh, First one's from uh, Patrick Oleksik. I don't know if it was in a previous podcast. I don't recall it, unfortunately. What arguments did you use to convince developers to do testing as an activity? Because faster feedback loop, if there was a problem, could convince some, but not all of them. And then Aftershock9, who I don't have the full name in front of me, sorry. uh, I don't know why they ask me these questions. Angry Weasel. A few times on the podcast, you have mentioned that part of the quality role you played at Microsoft Teams was to teach developers how to write good and useful unit tests and integration tests and lots of other tests. I added that part. Would you mind exploring what resources, books, courses that has aided you in developing the framework and approach you took? I was speaking to one of the devs on my team, and he said lots of times they don't know what unit tests to write. I would like to work with them to explore and improve this. So the questions are largely around and... You can answer this first if you want, or you can let me go. Your call is how do you get developers to write tests 
and especially how do you get them to write good tests? I see two questions. Number one is how do you how do you uh, convince them to start, and then once you've convinced them, uh, what what are the uh, training resources to get them going running? My technique to get them to start um, was actually rather easy. I own the test org. You are responsible for the quality of this. I will not be using my test resources for writing test cases any longer. So I was able to get away with, no, I'm changing what my team, what what I, I'm changing the business case for what I use my, my team's people for. And uh, then all I had to do was, was say, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. And much of it is the main reason why we did this podcast, right? That, that I would have a more succinct version of explaining to my peers, this is my rationale. Then I would go through and I said, but uh, the typewriter example, we will be there to teach you to fish. We just aren't going to fish for you anymore. So I was able to get away with it because I was – when I was going through this, I was in a management position, and I own the decisions around what my resources will do. I don't know that that's going to be helpful for many of our um, – I, I don't think so. So I can give a couple of stories how I've done it. Um, but I'll go back way before Teams, way back in, shoot, like 18 years ago working on Windows CE – our dev team decided, a big chunk of our dev team decided they were going to start writing unit tests, which is great. And I even gave, I remember I gave a talk to the team on how to write unit tests, how to get started with our framework, use it for unit tests. It was all going great. And that's where I had a difficult and a very difficult conversation that right after that talk. One was from a developer saying, hey, if we're writing all these unit tests, what's the test team going to do? And I was able to explain that because that's I could... Give them context. Back then, probably the itties or things that... Yeah, yeah. But then the more difficult question was when a tester came to me and said, if devs are writing unit tests, what are we going to do? Same answer. Same answer, but a little more a little more stern and strict. Yeah. Yeah, there was another thing that I did as a... There's another technique I did years ago that I, that I recall. And it was a... The issue was is... My test team was slowly but surely getting all of their resources sucked into maintenance costs on the automation because dev wasn't informing us about these changes before they check in. Do you remember those problems back I then? I do. Yeah. I do. And so um, I basically laid out a plan for my team and I said, hey, guys, uh Tests will no longer uh, do uh, – what did we used to call check-in tests? Smoke tests. Tests will no longer do smoke tests for every check-in for you. We will um, we'll give you uh, – per team, per, each of my leads will give you eight hours a week. You can, you can use it as you see fit. You need to negotiate. But before – the entrance into that is you need to run the smoke test. 
some dev leads did, some dev leads didn't. But every time a BVT failed or a key test failed, I don't know if this maps to modern times, but every time a test failed, I went back and I ran the smoke tests. And then I was very public. Well, dev lead guy, had you run this smoke test, you wouldn't be dealing with this. So I just slowly but surely... I did. Right. I did a. I need to worry about the scale so of my team. I, I want to get back on the because I was, wasn't done yet, and I want to get back on the right question. You're kind of answering the question now of of how do you get them to run tests? How do you get them to test before check in? Uh, no, so what, I want to. I want to go back to. So let me summarize the point of that story, and then I'll let you go back. Um, the point of that story is that particular dev didn't realize that had he run this the smoke tests himself, he wouldn't have gotten into this really messy BVT thing. It got really political really fast. So I was creating motivation and incentives for them to buy in. All right. So not everybody, and probably very few people in these days is going to have the leverage you had back then. So let me tell a couple stories about how different techniques I've used to get developers to write tests. Uh, when I joined, actually, I'll go back before Teams on the uh, the project that I refer to as a stupid science project. Actually, I can go back to CE. What, the story I wanted to tell there, and the way I got us onto this tangent was when the developers wrote unit tests, they wrote really crummy unit tests. They weren't very good tests. And at that time, I was new enough on my career, I didn't know how to coach them. I didn't, other than complain, I didn't know what to do. I think it's really easy for a less experienced software engineer, regardless of discipline, to know what to do when you see something you don't like. And I see this uh, frequently across uh, in Twitter uh, with people I work with regularly, people I've worked with before, where they see a problem, they don't know what to do, and they throw their hands up in the air. And that's kind of what I did at the time. I knew the tests were really bad. I Part of me was thankful they were writing them, but I had other stuff I needed to do, so I worked on that. When I joined the science project, we didn't have a test team. We had a quality team that focused on data. It was stupid. It was Windows. They don't know what they're doing. Sorry, Steve. But one very introvert aware technique I used was code reviews. I looked at it. I was on the code review alias and the team was big enough. I could look at every check-in and I could start by asking questions like, where are the tests? Stuff one. And what helps and to give some framework, what helps and what helped in windows CE, one thing we did to get the developers write unit tests and that windows did in a much, much better way at the time was make it so dirt simple to write a unit test that it was it was very little tax to write a test. They would type a command line and it would figure a bunch of stuff out and create the whole framework for unit tests. You start writing right away. Little, little command line script and you bam, you're writing tests. Uh, so one technique is make it so easy for them to write tests. So you may have to create a framework. One thing I've done a lot over the years is created a dirt simple to use framework for uh, the team to use to begin to write tests. You do have to eliminate all excuses except for yeah. up into test does it right. for you. Right. So that part was taken care of. They had a framework. 
Uh, so I'd ask questions like, where are the tests? And they go, oh, yeah. We need, and somebody, usually you have enough allies, someone jump in the, yeah, these need tests. So I asked that for a while. And then after a while, I wouldn't need to ask because there was enough people that had seen me ask that, enough people joined the bandwagon that they would start asking each other, hey, where are the tests? So now we're getting tests in. Now the tests were kind of crummy. Way too much complexity, odd, bizarre asserts, uh, tests that didn't actually test anything, tests where if it failed, there was no indication other than rerunning the test in the debugger to figure out what exactly failed. All the test smells that we, you and I have seen for years, which even for the most experienced devs, what I've learned is 90% of the devs, regardless of their experience, when they begin to write tests, will, will write really, really bad tests. And so I just started asking questions. Do you still experience that? Uh, no, much yeah. less so. I think, well, it comes with experience. I think these days, the developers I work with have been writing tests about as long as they've been writing code. But back then, remember that we had a lot of developers at Microsoft, and maybe you still do today, who coded for 10, 15, 20 years without ever writing a single test. Here, here, I completely agree. But here's one of the things that I would actually say is different between then and now, particularly it's the first time I've thought about this in a while. But the devs that I work with, the sort of the, the – back then the spirit was, no, we needed testers because they saved my ass. Um, but today that sentence is still true except it's I need my tests because they've saved my ass. Yeah. So, yeah, they're definitely better today. So I ask questions like – and remember, people are going to be at different places. So – Again, just via code review, I would ask questions about test smells. Just all the classics. Wouldn't have to look at them that closely. Just all the stuff that I had seen wrong. Sometimes just asking, what does this do? And other people would chime in. And guess what happened? Just like the last thing, eventually enough people would pick up on the things that the test smells. They would begin to ask each other questions. And then I would continue to look at all the code coming in. And mo a lot of it had pretty good tests. I would ask. I would have to ask fewer questions. And eventually, I went through like a week of looking at code and thought these are all pretty good. So no resources required. Just a lot of my experience, just looking for test smells. A lot of, uh, a lot of remote or virtual coaching, as well as some one-on-one -on -one things, walking through some things. People were confused. It's taking so, leadership on. Teaching the fish. It's asking, yeah, I'm teaching people to fish. And then on teams, largely the same. Uh, when I got there, they had written a lot of tests, and the, and the dev team wrote all of the tests. Okay, 95% of the automa automated tests. And their unit tests were actually pretty good. They knew what they were doing. They tested one thing. They ran quickly. They ran exactly as I expect a set of unit tests to run. They wrote a bunch of tests with uh, Selenium, with Protractor, uh, and they were crap. And again, I think writing UI automation is very, very, very difficult, and I hate it. Uh, necessary sometimes. It has no freaking place in a unit test suite. No, it was. This was not not in the unit test suite. Okay. This was their. <laughs> I'm like, I said, oh my god! They wrote all the tests. <laughs> they wrote all the tests. Yeah, okay. 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 Uh, and they made the same mistakes a lot of junior testers and and maybe even 
intermediate testers make with writing UI. They try and test too much through the UI. They littered sleeps in their codes to deal with synchronization issues. It was just a mess. And we slowly cleaned that up. It never got great. It got better. But they also fell into that trap of, since I've written this automated test, there's no reason I would ever want to get rid of it or not run it on every single build because I wrote it. Remember, remember that trap from 15 years yeah. ago? I think it's interesting to watch people new to I'm testing not but not new to development fall into that same trap. I am not certain that that phenomenon died 15 years ago okay, well. or even died. <laughs> Dying. It's slowly dying. Yeah, keep the hope alive, my friend. So, I'm not certain that's true. Um, I I know you asked for resources, but other than by the time I got to a stage where I was doing coaching of development teams writing tests, I had been testing for long enough. I was able to do it as a uh, combination of work experience, random test books I had read over the years. Uh, and pains and tribulations from my life as a software tester. So uh, I don't have any ex- I don't have any shortcuts I can think of or, or bootstraps other than just leveraging experience and trying things and experimenting and seeing what works. That's getting them to the end. Like in terms of a bootstrap, um, I but my recommendation is still. Uh, Find a way to just get them started with with TDD, right? Um, and even even if all you ask them to do is one test per check in as with a, a TDD model, what you're trying to do is just get them started, right? It, don't flood them with if you start talk, talking to them and you go through and you and you unwind all the deep technical considerations that you as a, a two-decade-long experienced tester has done, you're going to scare them off. You want to – because their motivation is they're the right code. But they also are motivated to not go back and have to fix the code they just write. Um, so just get them – I would – there's a lot of TDD resources on there. Uh, if you can afford it, find a local TDD expert and bring them in. If you can't, I would recommend um, the .dotnet objective or .net objective guys. Uh, they travel anywhere. They may be outside your price tag, um, but uh, you just want to get them started. The next thing you need to do is is um, modify your check-in automation and you just need two checks. Did the suite pass? Did this contain a new test? Yeah, one uh, and one little bit to add that did help. Uh, I've always said code coverage is a horrible metric but a wonderful tool. Uh, measuring code coverage on your code is good. And one, one thing I do with development teams, I never give them a goal of a number to shoot for. I'll say your code coverage is this. This Say it's 80%. That means 20% of your code doesn't have tests. Are you okay with that? And they say, no, we should have 100. I said, 100 is really hard. Let's, what, what do you think is right? And they'll decide on their own goal, which is fine. But I, I'll remind them the goal is not important. 
uh, it's important to understand what's not tested. But then the piece that helps them with that scenario you just talked about is this happened on Teams without me even suggesting it. Uh, one of the dev teams, followed by more of the dev teams, and we've done this on several teams now at Unity as well, have added a check-in gate where if the code coverage number drops from the previous build, the check-in is rejected. Because that means that new code was added without tests. Sure. So that helps. That gets people encourages people like well, code I coverage percentage. Yes. So if you if you removed lines of code, if you remove lines of code that, that were could tested, to drop. Sure. Right. You could. So that's the only negative thing on that one. It is, but, but I assume the team the team hasn't taken it that way. They figured uh, it's a little bit of a Boy Scout rule where they will add. Oh well, I'll add. Here, here's where some tests are missing. I'll go add some tests. It incur- It actually encourages the right behavior. I like. And, we, and there like is, of course, a way to bypass if if it really is an issue, but hasn't been an issue yet, which is great. I like that rule. Um, on code coverage, what I found is the best thing to do uh, is use it, is is this is on teaching the fish. Teach it as an uh, analysis tool. Yep. Like the first thing I would always do. When I got a code coverage results, I would bring in the dev and, a, and I would go for the high-level high bits. I'm like, hey, here's a whole class here that doesn't even have not touched. Yeah. Hey, here's a function that's not touched. What does that mean? Right? And I, I'm more of teaching them no, for how sure. to use the that's data what and what it, questions It's a wonderful to tool, a horrible metric. There hasn't yeah. been a single time where I've uh, kicked off a code coverage project, like first time as your code coverage had that conversation, asked that question about this. This class isn't called by any tests. Oh, yeah, that's dead code. We should remove that. Yes, we should. <laughs> One last question. I want to get to a little bit of overlap. These all segue well because I'm a, I'm a wonderful planner. Uh, from Sean, what are your thoughts on building out or structuring development teams as f- first QA person at a small startup that has no testing specialist? Do you see a place for hiring a test specialist to add missing skills to a team? Any advice on moving the team towards whole team ownership of testing if some might be expecting to push all or most testing tasks other than unit test, the test specialist QA person? So to paraphrase the way I hear this is a small startup or a small team uh, doesn't you on one hand, you want to hire someone with some testing expertise to help bring that to the team. But there's also the worry that if you do that, they become the testing bottleneck for the team. Yeah, I was thinking a different B word. Um, <laughs> uh, so if it's a brand new startup and you're the 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 first tester there, like in that scenario, like it, it is really best for you to to in as part of your interview set these expectations around what you're what you're going to do when you first arrive your your job if so you're you're coming to a team you're the first tester and because you're the first tester there's one thing that is phenomenal so far with that thing and that is the dysfunctional codependency loop has not started and the first thing I would do is go, okay, this is how we're going to make sure it never starts. So 
I can look at this from two directions. One, I'm the test person about to be hired onto this team. Remember, I was my uh, official, my unofficial title on Teams when I joined was the testing guy. Mm-hmm. They had a team of no, they had a large development team when I joined, about fifty or sixty developers, and I was I was hired to make sure they actually thought about testing a little bit better. So, but I think you very quickly changed your your pseudo role name title thing yeah. to quality guy, not testing guy. Yeah, for sure. So if I have this small company, a small team, I want to bring in the testing guy, I'm bringing in somebody to help coach testing expertise on the team, at thinking from the role of development director or development lead or owner or whatever. I, want, I have to look at it as not bringing in a bottleneck, someone to test quality in. I want to highlight efficiency and bring in someone that can help the team get better at delivering quality software. Uh, from the other angle, if I'm a tester uh, looking to get started at this company, I would definitely ask questions. Like if I'm, I see I'm interviewing some, you know, Acme startup co, and they want me to be their, their first tester, their only tester. I'm definitely going to ask some questions to make sure that I am not hired to be the bottleneck. There's a little bit of, for some people, I think there's a little bit of ego involved. They'd want to be like, I want you to depend, in, depend entirely on me. I will, I will do all your testing for you and validate my self worth. Anything from shipping, yeah, but you don't want that. I again, going back to modern testing, we want to be the accelerant for the team. Right, we want, we want to add business value because we highlight risk in the appropriate places and we help the team deliver more efficiently. And looking at all the different, not just functional testing, but all the different aspects of quality the team could be working on and making sure they're all on the radar, which is a very difficult job. But I think, I don't know, it's tough. I think often what happens, unfortunately, is I'm this development director and I have a dev team. I need a tester. I hire a junior tester to come do a bunch of testing for the team and help me out. And it, and that just sends you spiraling in the wrong direction. Yeah, you do. And that can that, that's a far too common dysfunction of, of leadership. Like I... One of the things that we've started seeing in the last, I don't know, six months, um, people who never grew up in test joining the Slack channel. Yeah. Because they're like, no, this aspect, the testing activity, and that's, again, going, um, that's the thing that I, I see is shifting, is that the industry is viewing it, again, more as an activity that has to be done, not necessarily by a particular discipline and they're seeing it more as a systemic problem which Mm -hmm. i think is absolutely the right thing so yeah could you a startup um created by i'm thinking about actually a buddy of mine who who joined multiple startups with rockstar developers right the developer you know is often an inventor or a founder of a concept wrote a bunch of code hired a bunch of people around them and trying to build a business out of it um they may or may not have the business acumen necessary to make that thrive or succeed yet. Yeah. Right. They may not know that the fact that they, you know, are producing crap build after build is actually going to hurt them. Um, I think the specific answer to the question, and this is not a great answer, but it's because it requires a lot of nuance, but uh, in respect to time, Yes, for any advice on moving the team towards whole team ownership of testing is the person you hire as the testing specialist 
is not is there to do very little of the testing. Yes. So that's the advice both from the, I think, to the tester joining the team as well as the person hiring that tester. If you hire that person for their expertise, not to do all of that task. I would do the same thing if I was hiring a someone, man, I got, I got to hire a performance guru. I am not going to hire him to go around through all the code and tweak it and optimize it. I want him. He's going to do a chunk of that. He's definitely going to do some of that. But I need him to help the whole team develop that performance culture. That's the same thing I want to do with quality and testing. There's So, yeah, a T-shaped person there on the performance stuff. Right, I would hire somebody that is familiar with the tooling. I would want to make sure when with these type of problems that the approach I always start thinking through is what system or tech can I put into place? And then when I say system, it could be a process. Um, but what can I put into place that will increase friction around in this case, dev, doing the wrong thing, even without that dev having knowledge of the right thing, right? The, the more you can just tell them what to do in an accurate fashion, the better, and the more you can automate telling them what to do, even better, right? If you, can, if you have something that can run uh, profiling automatically, say part of your unit test suite, and point out that there was a regression here, and if it can somehow connect up to static analysis tools and tell you why, fantastic. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So uh, we are about out of time. One uh, question not written down that we get a lot is, what happens after modern testing? Say you've uh, worked yourself, you've got your team executing, and the knowledge is all there on the team. What happens to you? And the answer is about 50 million different things. But I've often talked at Unity how my goal has been to work myself out of a role, but not a job. And I got a little worried because recently I've pretty much worked myself out of a role. What does that mean? Let's talk about it in 98. 